Uh, good morning. Um, reading uh, from Romans, and in our Pew Bibles, it's on page 1125, if you want to read along. to Romans 15, verses 14 through 33. <clears throat> I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illich I practiced this this morning. um, I have fulfilled the ministry of gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia. I have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Thank you, Lorraine. If it makes you feel any better, I have no idea how to pronounce it either. I won't be referencing that verse in the sermon here. So I remember when I was a kid, I don't remember what age I was, I'm guessing 10 or 11, something like that. There was a season in my life at that age when I I was dominated by this question that sort of determined how I would go about my day, day in, day out. And the the question that that I would always ask myself is, what would happen if I, and then fill in the blank, right? What would happen if I, that's a question that a kid asks. What would happen if I... And this question led me, one of the things it led me to do is I took a wire and I stuck it in the electrical outlet, uh, one, one side of the electrical outlet. I took a wire, put it in there, and then I, I touched the other end of the wire to one of the legs on my music stand. And then I took another wire and I stuck it in the other slot in the electrical outlet and I touched it to another leg on my music stand and I was wondering what would happen. Well, uh, there was a big poof, uh, some sparks, 
and then a, a big black mark exactly in the middle, like right in the middle, in between where I had touched here and touched here, exactly in the middle, there was this black spot. Another time, uh, I, I remember I was saying to myself, what would happen if I took a firecracker? I guess it's sort of my pyro stage. I don't know. Uh, I asked myself, what if I took a firecracker and I put it in the screen window out front of my hand, one of the screen windows, just kind of wedge it in there and light it, what would happen? And I found out that what happens is you have to buy a new screen window for your mom, right? This is a question. What would happen? Now, <clears throat> That may, this may seem like somewhat of a strange analogy here, but the passage that we are looking at, okay, what this passage does, if we, if we see it through the right lens, is it actually addresses this particular question. What would happen if the gospel took a hold of my heart? What would happen if the good news fully took over my heart and my life? We're continuing in this series on the book of Romans, a series which we're calling Good News. We've been in this series for about eight months. This is our second to last one. Next week will be our our final message in this series. And the theme of this series is good news, that Paul is announcing that there is good news, that there is good news that trumps all bad news. And we've gone over this over and over again over the last eight months, that whatever bad news may come into your life... What the book of Romans ultimately communicates is that there is good news that trumps that bad news. And so we've been unpacking what that good news is over the last several months. And the question that emerges then as we come towards the end of this book is what happens when the gospel, when that good news takes a hold of us. And it's, it's important to notice this, that it, it really is something that takes a hold of us, that there's a sense in which our response to the gospel is in one sense almost not even something you choose to do, it's something you're compelled to do. When the gospel gets a hold of you, it's not just something you choose to do, it's something you're compelled to do. This is why when Paul refers to the gospel in the first chapter, chapter 1, he he says something interesting. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. That's what that word means. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he doesn't say, he doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's really great news about what God has done. Of course, he believes that. That's true. That's at the center of it. But he says something else. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What he's saying is there's something about this gospel, something about this this good news that It's not just news that tells you about something that has happened. It's a good news that works in you with a certain power, and it compels you. There's almost an automatic reaction when the gospel begins to get a hold of us, just like there's an automatic reaction when you take a wire and you plug it into the outlet and you touch it to the music stand, and then you touch the other one, there's an automatic reaction. The same thing when you put a firecracker in the screen window and you light it, there's a, bam, there's automatic reaction. Something automatically happens. And in the same sense, the more the gospel gets a hold of our hearts, the more we are compelled into action. Now, it's not always instant. It's not always like your music stand and your firecracker. I'm thinking it might be a little bit more. Another analogy we might use is that it's a little bit more like antibiotics. Antibiotics is a good way of of looking at it in the sense that when you go to the doctor and and you, oh, I'm sneezing and I've I've got a sore throat and 
And the doctor, he might give you some advice on what to, to do, but he's, he's not like, well, if you, if you do this exercise and you do this, then it'll make your sneezing go away, your coughing go away. No, he says, you, you take it and it works in you automatically. The antibiotics work in you automatically, and, but there's a sense in which it's not immediate, right? It's not immediate. There can be a slow, gradual degree to which the antibiotics begins to change you and deal with that illness. And in the same sense, the gospel, it's not necessarily instantaneous. It can be gradual, but it is something that if it's really taking root of us, more and more it will compel us. There will be this sort of automatic response. And the question is, what does that response look like? What happens as the gospel more and more and more begins to take a hold of our hearts. And Paul, in, in the letter to Romans, essentially he, he tells us what this would look like. He exhorts us to this, so exhorting us and telling us. He, he, he tells us what this would look like in chapters 12 through 14, sort of unpacks what this would look like. And we see that it, it, looks, it unfolds in, in ways in which we deal with those around us. It, it changes the way we... We deal with our relationships at every level, our neighbors. It changes the way we deal and relate to the government. It even takes a, a section where it talks about that. This response in us changes the way we sort of deal with uh, every relationship. And so he tells us this in chapters 12 through 14. But then here in, in 15, chapter 15, it's like here he's not just telling us, he's showing us. He's showing us what, what chapter 15 reveals to us is that Paul himself is a man in whom the gospel has taken hold of. And in 15, we see how that transpires in his, in his life. Right, so the, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans unpack what the gospel is, tells us what this good news is. Is And then chapters 12 through 14, he sort of tells us what our response will look like as the gospel begins to take a hold of our hearts. And then in chapter 15, he shows us in his own life what it looks like. And how can we sum up? I mean, if we were just going to sum up what we find in Paul's life revealed in this passage and in other passages throughout Scripture that tell us about his life. What is it that we discover about Paul that, that can, t- can reveal to us what happens when the gospel gets a hold of us? And it's simply, it's simply this. When the gospel gets a hold of you, we become people who give themselves for the sake of others in everything. We become people who give ourselves for the sake of others in everything. We give. We don't, we're, not, we're, not, we're not just here to receive. We're not here to take that fundamentally we become people who give rather than take. We give with everything. We give with our tar, our time, our abilities, and our resources. We give with our tar, our time, our abilities, and our resources. I like to say that. Some people say our time, our talent, and our treasure. I don't like that so much because when people hear the word talent, they tend to just think of that in terms of artistic, artistically, like talent. Oh, what's my talent? You know, I, I don't sing or draw. But ability, right? What's your ability? 
It's more, more general. It talks about the, the, a, a word, I think, that captures how we all have different abilities. And the question is, how much are we using those abilities for the sake of others? That as the gospel gets a hold of our hearts, we begin to give and give more and more of our time, of our abilities, and our resources. And this is what we discover here in the life of Paul. You simply, we cannot overstate the degree to which Paul gives himself for the sake of others in response to the gospel working in his heart. What emerges in this passage, and we pick up from other passages of Scripture, is that over the last 10 years, Paul has essentially been doing nothing but darting around the Mediterranean world planting churches. Just from one town, one region to another, going around, proclaiming the gospel, beginning, uh, starting Christian communities, raising up leaders, and just moving from place to place. He's been doing this for the past 10 years, and, and everything that he does is for that. His work is for that. He's a tent maker. He works, and he works, and wherever he goes, he sells tents to make money for what he's doing. And so even everything about his work is ultimately for the purpose of giving for the sake of others. This is why I, I think if we were to ask Paul, there's a question we often ask, you know, how, how much of my income should I, you know, give? You know, what percentage should I give for the sake of ministry, for, this, for the sake of others? How much should I give? I think Paul would just be confused by that question. He's like, what, what do you mean? Like that? Everything, that's what, we're, that's what we're here for. Like, a percentage? He's like this. It, it is what enables him to do everything that he's doing. We can't overstate the degree to which Paul gives himself for the sake of others. Let me just read to you just briefly a passage in, in, in 2 Corinthians where, where Paul just kind of shares a little bit of what his life has been like in recent years. So, Paul is willing to give himself for the sake of others, even at his own peril, even when others are trying to stop him and threaten him because they don't understand what it is that he's doing. Have you ever tried to help somebody and they don't realize that you're trying to help them and they try to stop you? Now, Paul ran into that all the time. We see this here in verse 24. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger. This sounds like the revenant or something like that. I mean, this is just crazy. I have been in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. This is a man who has given everything, everything, for the sake of others. He's a guy, in, this, in this passage that we're looking at today, in, in Romans chapter 15, what emerges from here is this is a man, the problem is he just can't be in three places at once. In this passage, we see he wants to be in three different places. Uh, he's writing to the Christian communities in the city in Rome, and he wants to be there with them. He wants to be in Rome. 
but he also needs to be in Jerusalem. We, we pick up from here what Paul is doing is he's actually going around to the various churches in the Mediterranean, and he's taking a collection because a famine had hit the region of Palestine in the years before, and the communities there were in, in very difficult financial situation, and so he's traveling around making this collection so that he can go back to Jerusalem to take care of them, and he's trying to get that done uh, because there's a third place he wants to be, and that's that he wants to be in Spain. He wants to go to Spain. He's, he's seeing that, that that's the next place that, that God is leading him to do ministry, right? He says this kind of ridiculous thing. He says, yeah, I, I, every, everything around here, I've done all my work around here. I've done all my work here. And he's, he's not saying that, that everybody in the Mediterranean region has come to know the gospel, but he's saying his role in this, he's done what he needs to do, and now he's moving on to this new place that God has called him to. In fact, it's, it's kind of remarkable, actually, because we begin to realize this is why he wrote the letter of Romans. Why did Paul write this letter? Why did he write it in the year 57? What were the, the circumstances that led him to do this? And we realize there's a very practical reason. He's actually looking to raise support for his mission to Spain. He's hoping that Rome will become a base where he can then go out from Spain, maybe take people with him, maybe have resources with him. This is a letter that he's written in order to raise support for this vision of going to Spain. Now here, just as a side note, this could be an entire message in and of itself, But what's sort of remarkable to note is that it seems, we don't know this for sure, but it seems Paul never made it to Spain. He never made it. He writes this this entire letter to raise support to go to Spain, and it seems that he never makes it. And I think what this kind of reveals to us, as one scholar points out, he says, you know, what we see in this is that sometimes God gives us dreams, and he doesn't necessarily fulfill them. He gives us dreams, but he doesn't give us the dream necessarily to fulfill it. He gives us dreams so that we'll take the first few steps in that direction. And it's the things that we do in those first few steps that are really what God needed. God didn't need Paul to be in Spain. He needed him to write the letter of Romans, which we're now reading today. What are the dreams that you have, the dreams that perhaps have gone unfulfilled, is it possible that actually it's being fulfilled, you just don't know it, because what God really needed is you to take those first few steps. Paul wanted to go to Spain. He wants to be in Jerusalem, wants to be in Rome, wants to be in Spain. He wants to be everywhere because he is a man who is giving himself entirely for the sake of others. I I think think when, when, when we look at this, we then sort of have to, so to ask this question here, you know, what would this look like? What would this look like for you to give yourself entirely for the sake of others? What would that look like in your life? It's going to be different for different people. Not everybody is going to do it the same way. We are gifted in different ways. We have different roles, different callings that God has given us, it's not going to look exactly the same. Maybe another analogy, uh, sports teams, the teams that usually win, they're the teams that give everything. You hear this all the time, right? They just give everything, and they, 
they train more than anybody else, and they, they work harder than anybody else. They put in all of the hours more than anybody else. But they all don't do the same thing. The quarterback doesn't do the same thing as the running back. They don't all do the same thing. We have different roles. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is what would it look like for you to give yourself fully? We don't all do exactly what Paul does. What we see in what Paul does is not necessarily a model for what each and every one of us should do. Rather, what we should see in it is the degree and the passion with which he gives himself for that cause. And so my question for you today is what might it look like for you to give more of yourself, to give more of your tar? more of your time, more of your abilities, more of your resources, maybe your time. Let me sort of ask ask it this way. In what ways are you using your time that might be hindering your ability to help others? In what ways are you using your time that might actually be hindering your ability to help others? What about your abilities? What about the ways in which you've been trained? What about the ways in which you have been gifted? What about the, the, the ways in which you are wired? What are ways in which you could be using your abilities, whatever those might be, in order to better help other people? Maybe for some of you it might mean a change in your career. I know a number of people in careers where they're like, well, I just feel like my abilities could be used in a way that could help people more. For others, it's different. It's not their career. It's, it's, it's they, they realize that they could be involved more in church. They could give more of their abilities for the needs of the church. Believe it or not, the, the church is almost like a microcosm of society in many respects. And a lot of the, the needs and the abilities that you find out in society are similarly needed in the church in order to make it function and to make it work well. Maybe for you, it would be finding ways to use your abilities in the church or some other way of serving the community. Maybe it's your resources. Maybe it's your resources. Maybe it's your financial resources. What are ways in which perhaps you could be using those to help others in a greater degree? How many of us, the truth is, we'll say something like this. We'll say, well, I'll help people with my financial resources as, 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 long as, I, as long as I have this, right? as long as this is what my life looks like financially, then everything else is okay. I, I remember a friend of mine in high school saying, well, I'm going to pursue God. <laughs> he said this, and he realized it was an odd thing to say. He's like, I'm going to pursue God uh, once, once I have my, my, fi- my career figured out. Once my financial resources are set, you know, then, then I'll then I'll give. I think Paul would say, wait wait a minute. When the gospel takes a hold of you, you give everything. Now, what is it about the gospel that compels Paul to live this way? What is it about the gospel when it works in you you find yourself not necessarily even choosing to do this, but you find yourself compelled to live this way more and more. What is it about the good news that compels us to live this way? And, and, and we, get, we get a little bit of a hint. Paul, just this, the gospel saturates everything that he writes, and it works its way into things, I think, in some, res, 
respects almost subconsciously for him. And it's the last verse that Lorraine read, verse 33. How does he end this section? He says, the God of peace be with you all. The God of peace be with you all. Now, that word peace, that word peace is a word that I think we hear it, and it, it almost has sort of a sentimental uh, uh, feel to it. It's sort of a, a, a weak word, you know, peace. You know. A, a man of peace, you know, is someone who, you know, doesn't get into conflict. Don't, hey, you know, I'm a man of peace. Don't let me get, I'm not going to get involved in this. Right? There's always this sentimental weakness about the word peace. When we read the word peace here in chapter 15, we need to understand the idea that God is a God of peace in light of everything that Paul has said in the first 14 chapters. And when you realize what Paul has said in the first 14 chapters of the book of Romans, God of peace has a very different, much richer, much fuller meaning than what we often associate with the word peace. There's so much that I could say here, but I will at least perhaps put it this way. What we discover in light of Romans is this. God is a God of peace, and what that means is it doesn't mean that God avoids conflict. It doesn't mean that God avoids the messiness of life. It precisely means that he is a God who puts himself in it. God is a God of peace because he puts himself right in the middle of our conflict, right in the middle of our mess, right in the middle of it, and takes it upon himself. The heart of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came, entered into the mess of our world, and took it all upon himself. Friends, whatever you are going through right now, whatever your hardships are, whatever your challenges are, whatever your fears are, I know you have them. We all have them. The heart of the gospel is that God has entered into that. God has entered into that, and you are safe in the midst of that challenge. Whatever it is that you're in, the God of the gospel is a God who has entered into that and you are safe in the midst of whatever a challenge might be. You are 100% secure in whatever situation you happen to be in. This might be kind of an odd analogy. I thought of it this morning, so I haven't had the test of time to figure out if I should have said this this morning. But I remember going to, I think it was in Baltimore, the Baltimore Aquarium. I can't remember which one. There are a number of aquariums that are like this. <clears throat> Might have been Philadelphia, actually. But you go to the, the aquarium, and aquariums these days, you know, the big ones, they're, they're pretty fantastic because basically you go, you go to one of these big aquariums, and it's like you, you walk through a tunnel that's on the, the floor of the aquarium, right? It's on the floor, and the thing is entirely made of glass, Right? And so you are, you're walking through it, and you can see everything around you. And what's remarkable about it is you're looking through the glass, and there's like, there's like stingrays, and there's like tiger sharks. 
I mean, th these are things where th you do not want to be in the bottom of the ocean with these creatures. You look around, I mean, they are, they're everywhere. And what's this kind of this odd thing, uh, just kind of, you, you have this sort of weird reaction when you see this, and you, you like, like, are we really okay? And, and you look, and you see families just walking through this tunnel, their kids, little baby, right? And overhead, there's a tiger shark and a stingray, and, and they're like, oh, and they, hey, let's get a picture. And, like, and, they, and, they lean up, and, and you, you take a picture, and there's, there's mom and dad and junior, and there's like the, the tiger shark's teeth are right there in the picture. And there they are in the midst of chaos, and they are 100% safe. Completely safe. Friends, the heart of the gospel is that when we profess faith in Christ, our lives become that aquarium, and you're going through it, and you've got tiger sharks, and you've got stingrays, and they are all around you, but because of our faith in the God who died on the cross and rose from the grave, we are safe. It's in that place of safety. It's in that place of peace that enables us to give. I read this article in the Harvard Business Review, and it was talking about the importance of leaders cultivating peace in their lives. Good leaders cultivate peace in their lives. It enables them to lead better. And listen to this quote. It says, it says fear and anxiety easily give way to anger and violence. The opposite of fear is trust. Hear that again. Fear and anxiety easily give way to anger and violence, right? Isn't that true? I mean, when we're afraid, when we're anxious, this is when we lash out. This is when we get angry. This is when we get violent. It's when we're afraid. We're worried. Fear and anxiety easily give way to anger and violence. The opposite of fear is trust. And I'm like, this is spot on. Right? This, this article is spot on. But, but there's something missing in what they're saying, because then they're saying, so cultivate trust. Have an attitude of trust. And I'm like, what on earth are you going to trust in? What do you have to trust in? You can't trust in the sharks and the stingrays around you. They're sharks and they're stingrays. You can't trust in them. What are you going to trust in? The heart of the gospel is that we have a God in whom we can trust. This is where, if I might just say, this is where we find really the difference between, say, Christian meditation and what you would find in, in other forms of meditation. In other forms of meditation, it's almost like, you know, clear your mind. Clear your mind of the, of the challenges that you're facing and just trust. Christian meditation is fill your mind with the truth of the gospel, and that enables you to trust. And this actually then does enable you to trust, believe it or not, to trust the stingrays and the sharks in your life. You can trust them, not because you trust them, but because you trust God. You can trust them. You can give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe that shark isn't going to bite after all. 
And you can do that because your trust is grounded in something that is safe and secure. And friends, see, this is then what enables us to give. Look, why is it that we don't give? Because we're so worried about ourselves. Why is it that we don't surrender our lives and give our lives for the sake of others? Because we're worried about ourselves. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to provide for me? And what Paul came to understand is that God loves you so much that no matter what you are in, he will take care of you. Friends, we're coming into the season of Lent. And this is a season that that we can use, that the, the church has traditionally used as a time to cultivate that relationship with God. And what I really want to encourage you to do, because see here, the, the message here is not go out there and give. The message here is cultivate that relationship with God because when the gospel begins to work in you, you'll be compelled to give. As we go into this season of Lent, my prayer is that we would approach it maybe with, with two, in two ways. First and foremost, may this be a season when we say, God, I need you more than ever. This is a time when we say we set aside more time. I would encourage you to set aside, set aside more time in prayer. Set aside more time in studying your Bible. Set aside more time just to be with God. That God may cultivate in you this faith that you can trust in Him. And then in light of that, in light of that trust, then I encourage you to begin to ask this question. What would it look like for me to give more and more of my life? Pray. You pray with me? Dear God, we come before you, the God of peace. God, I pray that we could just rest in you this morning. God, we are safe. We are secure. God, I pray that those worries and those anxieties would just, would fade away. God, we would see that we are called to something so much bigger than ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name.